Well, hello everybody, Justin Bell here on Life with Legends. I've been so fortunate to meet many extraordinary people over the years, but there are some that really do inspire you. And Bruce Meyer is one of those true gentlemen that I am just blessed to call a friend. Often called the unofficial mayor of Beverly Hills, Bruce seems to know just about everybody, and they in turn adore him back. People gravitate to his engaging demeanor, and I think it's not just me that wishes they could come back as him in the next life. His extraordinary card collection is secretly located just feet, literally above the visiting tourists, and yet to any of us in the car world, it's a place for us to meet and enjoy some of the most beautiful cars ever built. But I'm always intrigued on how do people achieve this level of success? What was their motivation? How, in fact, did they pull it off? I knew so little of his journey, and yet sitting down in his garage was going to be a real treat, and learning the whole story in the end makes him even more impressive. A true car guy and the perfect role model. I hope you enjoy it. Well, Bruce, thank you for having me back in in the in the garage. You know, it was a good. Oh, last time I was here was to Don, obviously, and you made a cameo uh, <laughs> at that point, which people liked. And then I was uh, TK and I did a podcast with these guys uh, on Friday, actually, and they went, "Oh, we, have you ever talked to Bruce Meyer?" And I was going, "God, he's been sitting right in front of me the whole time, and I've always meant to." So, thank you. Thanks well, for, it's a privilege you know, I, I, having um, you here, for sure. Well, you know, it's, as I say, when I come back, I'm coming back as you. And <laughs> I know I let so, your wife know that uh, on your birthday, right? That birthday greeting that you did was epic. I mean, I, I had some nice remarks from friends, but yours just, I don't know, just resonated with me. You said, I'm coming back and my collection is going to be, you know, not one one eighteenth, but well, I can fit on that. Yeah, my goal is that my calculation doesn't sit on the shelf behind me. That's right, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I know. Well, that's it. You know, it was. I say we sit here surrounded by all these cars, and and I always describe your and it's it's not today's not it's about you. It's about your cars. It's about life. But I always describe it. Your your collection as though you went sniper hunting. Right, you're a sniper with your cars. Uh, there are people that are shotgun collectors, right? They fire in the general direction and they seem to have an awful lot of cars. Would you agree that pretty much every car in here has the right story for you and fits you and is a part of your passion and must have been some very hard to get and some you've had for a long time? Is that how you describe it? Because it seems I, like it was so particular. You know, I, I really never thought of it in that term is like a you know a sniper but you're absolutely right so this is 50 years of one car a year and um the the four cam there i've had for 53 years i just i've been fortunate not to sell anything yeah and when i bought the four cam in 1970 i had the opportunity i paid a little over ten thousand dollars for that car and a gto was a little over eight thousand I mean, had I been Alan DeCadney or somebody that really knew his stuff, I would have a GTO now. I, you know, I could have been a real yeah, a real convention. but because I just haven't sold anything, and I've had some offers on cars, but you know, I just uh, I I'm very attached to what I buy because I don't like you say I, I, they're targeted purchases that mean a lot to me at the time, 
And I've just kept them and enjoyed them. And I don't have any idea what the values are. And I don't want to know what the values are. That's never been a, what it's about for me. It would probably ruin it a bit. I mean, Neil Mason said that about his, his, um, uh, well, he's got his GTO, hasn't he? Which I raced, I remember, 25 years ago. Um, uh, the Coys, when it was called the Coys Festival at Silverstone. Oh, right, but, Coys. But he said, well, suddenly it got to be worth like $50 million. And he said, it kind of takes the fun out of driving it around the country lanes because everybody knows how valuable it is, including him. Well, GTO is that way. And, and I have my short wheelbase that I've had for 22 years. That was my my 60th birthday present to myself. And I remember I was actually with Chip Connor. We were at his home in France and, or France. Yeah. And Octane Magazine had just kind of come out. And I remember reading like the first couple issues and Adrian Hamilton had an ad for a short wheelbase. And I'd always loved the short wheelbase. To me, I like the short wheelbase better than the GTO. It yeah, just yeah. it just works for me. And this car that I have now is actually not the advertised car, but he had a red streetcar advertised. And so I said to Chip, when I when we get back to the UK, I'd love to go see this car. And Chip said, sure. So he went over there and he had three short wheelbases. He had this one, which belonged to Greg Witten, you know, Microsoft. Yeah, yeah. He had a beautiful streetcar, a red one with black. And then he had one that belonged to some particular rock star. I forget who it was, but it was a rebodied car. And I just, that didn't appeal to me. So the car I have now is like twice what the street car was. And I thought, you know what? This is my 60th. This is a big deal. Yeah. And I, I that to, to, to this day, that's the most expensive car I've ever purchased. But I took it on the Colorado Grand. I drive it around and I use it. I still do. But like now the value is, like you say, it, it gets to a point where maybe you're not so smart driving it around, but I still do. Well, you have to, right? I have but, to. but look at you when you got, we were here, everybody, the other, about three, it seems only the other day, four months ago, when um, Dr. Porsche was in town and you bought that Brumos car and you just restored it and you showed it to us all for the first time. And the joy in your face, you were like, you were like the little boy that obviously I never knew, but you were the little boy who just got the car of his dreams, another car of his dreams. T yep. Talk me through that because sure. special car, but just uh, yeah. really exaggerates or showcases your passion. Yeah. And, you know, I think um, that's a very special car to me because I've loved Porsches since 1961 when I bought my first Porsche, but that car really resonated with me. But almost every car I have, I've, I've, I get very excited about, and I, I buy it for a purpose, and I love it to death. And I, I have friends that have a lot more cars and a lot more expensive cars. And as soon as they consummate, you know, buying a car, they're like, on to the next one. Mm. I'm not that way. I, it, you know, Tom, who works with me here, He's heard me say it so many times, you know, I said, well, that's it. We're done. You know, I, I can't think of another car that something happens. Yeah. You know, like that Brumos car. Yeah. That was just serendipity. Or the Pizzerini before it. All the Right. <laughs> yeah. You know, I kind of, I, I, I'm not looking for anything. I'll, I'll find something and, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll look at different, you know, advertisements or magazines mm. and think, do I need that car? No. Or do I want that car? Nice, but I don't. I, I yeah. wouldn't do it justice, and it just wouldn't work for me. But so every car in here has a story uh, and and a reason why I bought it, and um, it's 
special to me. Yeah, I'm sure. They're just checking the light there. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, it's, and that's what is so, that is what's so beautiful about sitting here. But tell me about the boy who was, what was the, the teenage Bruce like? Well, so, where were you? I know nothing about. Okay. It's like you, you're, uh, you're uh, the most handsome, lovely alien that dropped from the sky. Because I only <laughs> I, moved to America. You know, when I moved to California, that's when I got to know you. Yeah. 12 years ago. Sure. So, well, where, where did it all start? Yeah. Well, I grew up here in, in L.A., yeah. Hollywood, California. Um, nice, you know, middle class. Uh, we didn't really have any excess money. And, and it was, you know, money was tight. My parents had gone through the Depression, so they were yeah. mindful of, you know, that it could happen again. Uh, I went to Los Angeles High School, which is the school right in the center of L.A., um, very diverse. Uh, you know, it was not a—I say I went east to school. It was in East L.A., which east is not LA, the best yeah. part of L.A. But you, weren't I, going to, you weren't going to Newport, Rhode Island. <laughs> no, I didn't go to Exeter or Andover or any of those fancy schools. So, so I went public school the whole way, wow. and then I went to Berkeley. But, it, you know, so if I wanted something, I had to earn it. I had to— make the money and my parents really didn't understand the car thing at all and that was already there even at a young age the car from birth i think really yeah yeah i've always you can't take it out of me and my i have three children you know evan yeah, my yeah. middle son it's it's you know he's got that he's got gene it. you know that just you just love cars yeah. And and more than cars, I probably love the people of the hobby yeah. more than anything. Yeah. You know, I mean, just cars are nice, but sharing them and being yeah. with the, the great yeah, we'll come, folks. come to that because I think that's a big part of it. But I was just thinking, what was the first car you remember on the streets of L.A. going? I'll be that one day. I'll have one of those. Well, so um, I went to school uh, at a, a, a primary school right across the street from the Art Center School. And which was right in L.A. at the time. Yeah. And they had a driveway that, that paralleled our play yard. And the Art Center was known for automotive design. So a lot of the early hot rodders and designers, you know, went to Art Center School. You know, like, you know, I'm sure, you know, P Peter Brock or some of the... Some sure of the they did. Yeah, and they were all hot rodders, you know, and that's yeah. the way it started. So so um, I just admired these these cars. So I've always loved hot rods. And... and um, you know, I forget what the question is. No, which is the first car you can remember <laughs> oh, going? The first car. So, yeah. so, so, so I always, you know, I collect pictures of cars in magazines and my parents couldn't get rid of the magazines quick enough. I mean, they would throw them away. They take the, you know, take the car pictures off my bulletin board and, you know, you can't get interested in other stuff, you yeah. know, in sports and so Super forth. Out of I was just, it was surf cars and rock and roll. Yeah. That was my generation, mm -hmm. you know, of the forties and fifties. And so, um, I, I always ha I, I love work more than play. My family gets a kick out of it, but I just do. So early on, I set bowling pins in a bowling alley. I had what I think was the best paper corner in Los Angeles. Really, I mean, it was it was on Highland Avenue, where, right in front of Pizza Moza. You know where Pizza yeah, Moza is. Yeah. And so this was the the evening paper. And while the people were heading home in the evening, they would go right by. They, everybody almost had to pass in front of my paper corner, and I made it known that I appreciated their buying the paper from me. So I was making two or three dollars a day, which was big money back in the, you know, late 40s, early 50s. Well, it was it was early 50s, 52, 53. 
And and so I knew the guys that were going to give me a quarter and let me keep the dime, you know, and I knew the ones that were, and I had a little change thing around my waist, you know, ching, 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 you know, like the bus drivers have. So that, that, uh, that allowed me to save up money. And back then you could buy a really cool car for a hundred dollars. But, um, I, I started, I, I bought what was called a doodle bug, which was a scooter with a little Briggs and Stratton engine. Yeah. I almost killed myself in that because it didn't have brakes and it was just too small. You know, you could hurt yourself in that. So I, then I got a whizzer. I kind of put together a whizzer kind of, uh, you know, bits. How of, old are you now? Uh, 12. Oh, geez. And then I bought a 53 BSA. Now my parents, because of their oblivious, you know, they didn't understand cars. They would never even imagine that their son would have a motorcycle. I mean, that was like hell's angel kind of time. And so they never even queried or what I did or with my money or anything. They just thought I was working hard and putting it away. Did you park the bike around the corner then? I parked it in friends' garages. And so I was, and you know, back then I went with the tall bars, you yeah, know, yeah. kind of the whole hell's angel look. And, and um, so I, I had motorcycles at a very young age. And my parents didn't even know I had knew how to ride a motorcycle until like until really I got out of college, and and uh, you know Bill Harlan, yeah. my friend Bill Harlan. So we were fraternity brothers at Berkeley, and he was racing motorcycles. So that I wanted to be like Bill, so I started racing motorcycles. So back then it was called TT Scrambles, yeah. and we were racing matchless and big BSAs and stuff like that. So and whenever I'd go to to the UK, which I did. In the you know when I graduated college, I make sure I was somewhere near a motorcycle race on the weekends because I used to love it. You know they'd run in the dirt and they'd have a like a you know it was a great anyway. So I I grew up on motorcycles more than anything. I dated Raylene on a motorcycle. The motor- what, what age were you when you met her? Uh, I was twenty. Uh, let me see. I was twenty-eight. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So maybe, maybe so a little younger. And so I did. I I I I'd, I'd had Porsches, but. I was kind of because this was like in 1968. Yeah. And uh, Porsches in America in 68 were not, that wasn't a, a good year because you had to have a smog pump and they had these side lights. So I was between cars when I met Raylene. And so we just went everywhere on a motorcycle, which was fine by me because yeah, yeah. I mean, motorcycles were, I love motorcycles as much as life. No. I thought if ever I have to stop riding a motorcycle, life isn't worth living, you know. And now it just terrifies me to see yeah. people riding motorcycles. Change that, yeah. Wow. So, so um, then I, I, so my first real car was when I went off to college. Uh, you could you go through the orientation lines when you go off to university, and one of the little stations was a student loan. So I, and my dad had given me tuition. I had to work for my room and my. Yeah. Uh, for my food, and which was great because I had a hashing job and I worked in restaurants and that type of thing. It was never food was never a problem for me. I always got it. Yeah. But um, uh, I, I I discovered this line that would give you a tuition loan as long as you paid it back by the end of the year. Of course, I thought I'll take one of those. I already had the tuition, so I used my tuition money to buy a car and I bought a another another motorcycle and I bought a fifty Mercury. So the first car. You know, you know what a yeah, fifty yeah, Mercury yeah, is kind of visualize it. custom looking thing. It was kind of like James Dean and and uh, you know Rebel Without a Cause. It was a cool. So thing. you felt cool. It was cool. And, you know, I'm, listen, I thought it was cool, yeah. but, but at the same time, by being here in California, the hot rod phenomena was all around you. You couldn't have you if you lived here, you couldn't, and you had an interest, you couldn't miss it. Am I correct? Right. You're 100 percent correct. Yeah. Now, so so all the way through high school, I wanted hot rods. 
Okay. And then when I was in college, there were no hot rods. So I just, you know, got by with my Mercury and my motorcycles. And then when I turned um, 20, so, you know, I was a couple years into college. Mm -hmm. My dad thought it was time. And he always said, I'll help you buy your first car. And, and so I'd saved the money. I was buying half and he was buying half. Yeah. And at the time, they, there was a Chevrolet came out with like a 409, 348, 409, big engine. So I thought, I'm going to buy the cheapo, cheap model. And, and my dad would appreciate that. It was called a Biscayne, which was the post. I mean, it had no anything on it, but I wanted the big motor and a four-speed. Yeah. So, and my dad didn't even, he didn't know he didn't what, know what you Oh, getting. had no idea. A 348, 409, didn't, 260, he didn't care. It just didn't matter. He didn't know, and he always had the very low horsepower. You know, he didn't have anything great or new. He didn't, no. you know. So I, that was that. In a way, that was good for me because he could not figure out what I was doing. Nor did he care. He just figured I knew what I was doing. So at the time, I was ordering the Chevrolet, and up in in Hollywood was John von Neumann, who was a the the Porsche and Ferrari distributor, had a a a, a shop called Competition Motors. Well, I'd ridden my bicycle by it, my motorcycle by it a hundred times. Yeah. So I and I'd seen these little Porsches running around, and I kind of liked them. I thought they were cool, and they were, you know, you could they were running speedsters at Pomona and Riverside, and so you know they they had a little bit of a race image, and I liked yeah. that. So I thought I'm just going to check one of those out. So I did, and I found out I could buy a Porsche for twenty seven hundred dollars delivered in Europe. So I put together this scheme. It was a great scheme, Dad. <laughs> I'm going to take some time off. I'm going to go to Europe, and I'm going to pick up a little compact car Porsche yeah it's just a little he didn't yeah, even know 60, what a Porsche was no right? 60 horsepower is what the you know the low yeah. the low, yeah, yeah. 60 so he was all on it he just thought now that's a that my was... son's broadening his horizons <laughs> exactly <laughs> he's going to Europe he's going to get some uh, culture yeah and and meanwhile I'm just thinking just get me to that Porsche factory yeah. as fast as I can so that was really my first real real car was the Porsche in 1960 I bought it I ordered it in 60 picked it up in 61 at the factory is that you don't have that one no no and and as from then uh, I just I've been pretty much Porsche when I when I graduated college I took my Porsche up to Lake Tahoe and I took a bartending job and and um, I discovered a gullwing in a, in a, uh, there's a famous boat restorer in Tahoe called Sierra Tahoe Boat Company. And they did all the really beautiful wooden boats. And I've always loved wooden boats. Mm -hmm. So um, I, in, in the, in the boathouse was this gullwing with a reverse trigger, you know, like a reverse mm -hmm. lockout, like mm -hmm. a Corvette. And I'm going, oh my God, that's the perfect combination. A gullwing with a Chevy engine in it. So to make a long story short, I bought it. And I owned it for a year, and I sold it to Bill Harlan. I bought it in 64, sold it to him in 65, and he still has it with the Chevrolet engine. And that thing was wicked fast. So then I then I decided I should probably have a stock 300 SL, so I bought a Roadster, and then I went back. What did you buy the Roadster for? How much was that? Oh, I, I bought the Gullwing for 4000 Wow. I think I sold it for probably four. Yeah. And I think I probably paid four for the Roadster in, in 19, you know, this would be in 64, 65, something like that. And I bought it from Hal Wallace, who was a movie uh, producer. Yeah. I mean, a very low mileage, all original silver 300 SL with blue leather interior. I mean, it was all original. You know, because, listen, this was, the car was only five or six years old. Yeah. And it was a 300 SL. I mean, no one thought about keeping a car. 
because you needed the money to buy the next car. And no one thought this is going to be worth a fortune in 20, 30, 50 years. It was like the GTOs. You just moved through them. Right. To, I mean, Alan bought, owned two or three of them, I think, in his time, if if not more. It was just a, it was what's the next thing? Yeah. So I, I, I and so then, you know, I had the 300 SL and then I, I bought it in 60. I had it for probably a year, maybe. And then I sold it to a friend. And by the way, if you could buy a car and sell it for what you had in it and have a cool car, I, I was good with that, you know, because yeah. I always had, to my eye, something special, you know, that I liked and was proud of. And and I it never once I had my initial buy-in, you know, you could just keep, you could just you could sell it and buy another cool thing. And it wasn't like friends of mine would buy a new Chevy for you know twenty seven hundred dollars, then sell it for fifteen hundred, and then buy another one for. You know, I just never did that. I just bought. I just wanted to kind of at least stay even. Yeah, buy those cars. So then, uh, I, can I just jump back a second? Yeah, because, sure. Because I was just uh, when you went to college, was that when you first realized that? Did, I don't know what you studied at college, but did you? Was that when you were thinking, I could have a different life to my dad? Never. You, you I never, never. No, I never had that. You never had that you moment. Know, like, it's I'm funny. Agree to I, be. I. I, I I, first of all, I went to college, but I don't even remember learning anything. <laughs> you know, it never yeah. got in the way of my education. No. I, I always worked. I always had jobs. My roommates would study night and day. I'd come home, they were studying. I never studied. I, I never made great grades, but I got through. Yeah. And and I loved every minute of college. I was in a fraternity, which was just great. With Again, Bill Harlan and I were fraternity yeah. brothers. We had a great house. And, 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 and it was the 60s. This was 60s, yeah. And there were a lot of pretty girls. Oh, I mean, that is what all that mattered. Yeah. Cars you know, and girls, folks. Cars and uh, and motorcycles and girls. A hundred percent. And, and, that, and you know, it's, I'm serious. That's all that matters. Well, I'm here because of that. <laughs> I was born in 68. So, yeah. you know. You know, I mean, it, I just, you know, I, I fortunately went to, you know, Berkeley, which yeah. gave me some street cred because yeah. it's a good school. But. Yeah. You know, I you know, I never let it get in the way of what I wasn't doing. And so so I and my dad, my dad grew up like really dirt poor and um, was just a really a, a, a fine man and and very principled and a good businessman. And his he, he really wanted me to save my money. And and, you know, I guess I didn't ha I never thought I was going to be have any means. I never thought I was going to have two cars. I never had any dreams about big. It never entered my mind. Even to this day, I mean, I I don't even think, I mean, it, it, the number of cars or net worth, it doesn't, it's never a part of me. When, it, when I first started out, I guess I was most afraid of failure. Okay. You know, because I didn't want to disappoint my parents. They, they were amazing. Yeah. My mother, I'm my mother because she was a workaholic and she was the last one to bed at night, first up in the morning, made lists for everything. And she worked and worked and worked. And my dad was, a, you know, he was a good businessman, honorable guy. Not, he didn't like, he, he wouldn't be out front, you know, like work in the community yeah, like yeah. I did. I mean, I. You already knew you had the gift of the gap, right? You already I, knew. I don't know if I knew it. But, but now, you hustled now on I, the paper stand. Yeah. So you, oh, yeah. You oh, yeah. Oh, 100%. And I, I had great jobs. I, I set bowling pins and, you know, it was a just an awful job but i just i just enjoy working i yeah. really like to work and i like the i feel it gives me purpose you know yeah. so so there so you came out of college right 
you're in re- real estate. No, I wasn't in real estate then. Oh, okay, you weren't. No, no. So when I got out of college, again, women, rock and roll, mm-hmm. and like just, I just needed a job to pay for all that. Pay for all that. <laughs> and and I had a friend of mine had rented an apartment up in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. I mean, in just a shit area of Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Horrible. And and needed a roommate, and so there, it was a duplex. So we ended up taking both sides of the duplex. So there were four bedrooms, and there were four of us jamokes. You know that the, the, I would say the other three were way more serious than I was. Mm-hmm. Um, they were, you know, I never went to graduate school, but they were Stanford and Wharton mm-hmm. grads, and you know, working in and and and. Uh, the financial world. One had a bank, and the other two were stockbrokers. And you know, they were they were pretty serious. I just wasn't. Again, I wasn't all that serious. I just wanted to put gas in my tank and just go have fun. Yeah. And so that's kind of always been my thing. So I so so when I graduated college and I went to work in Michigan, worked there for. I went to first uh, uh, Tahoe and was a bartender up there for about maybe a little less than a year. Then I went back to Michigan and and worked for at a, for a chain of a department for a chain back there. I just I had never experienced like you know Michigan and I I'd met people and it was the car capital kind of outside yeah. of LA and I just thought it'd be cool. So I went back there and I worked for a year back there. Then I came back here in like sixty, probably in sixty uh, six sixty seven yeah. something like that. And I opened a, a candle shop downstairs in this building. That's that was my first job, you know. And my th- parents just thought I was crazy. My God, you're opening a what? All that education? A, a, can- <laughs> a candle shop. And um, I don't know if you ever seen a picture of me when I had no. my candle shop. No, it, ex- it it probably explains what I look like, and you'll get the picture real quick. That's funny. so. So anyway, so I opened a candle shop, and uh, let me see what am I doing. Um, and, um, and I, you know, so my parents literally thought I had just lost my mind. I mean, I, I don't know if I'd run from that person or I would, (laughs) yeah, yeah. I'd run from him or I'd buy, I'd buy a candle. I don't know. Well, you know, if you look very, you look very sixties, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. So, so anyway, so I had my candle shop and, um, I think. I had decent taste, you know, uh-huh. um, and I bought the right candles and artwork to go along with it, and we did rather well. And and so then, uh, you know, when you're in your late twenties, is it's about as smart as you'll ever be yeah, in your yeah, life. Yeah. There was a there was a fellow named Roger Horchow who was a big um, mail order business maven. He ran Neiman Marcus mail order, and I thought, you know, that looks like a good gig. So that's where we're here right now. Is where I started my mail order business. In here? In here. No. Yeah. And it was, I mean, we had pallet racks. We didn't have a forklift, but we had all the crap up there. Yeah. And so, anyways, we started a mail order business. Then I outgrew it here, and we moved it to another place. And, and then I moved up here. It was all little offices and a lunchroom and, you know, accounting and so yeah. forth. So it was, you know, things started going okay. Yeah. And then the man that owned this building took a liking to me and introduced me to the Rotary Club. I joined the Rotary Club in 1970, you know, looking like that. Yeah. And then the chamber, and I got involved with the Chamber of Commerce. And so I was, if I have a gift, I guess it's that of my love of people. It's yeah. I'm very comfortable, you know, cultivating 
friendships. Yeah, totally. And and that's what I did. I, I had gr- a great following in my candle shop and a good following in the community. And but you saw, I mean, what everyone needs that guy to help him. It sounds like this guy was the guy that turned you into my the dad. Hill's community. Yeah, yeah. My dad thought this was the biggest waste of time. First of all, look at you. You know, yeah. you'll never. You don't fit into any part of this community. No. <laughs> but this guy saw something yeah. and really, you know, uh, took me to the Rotary Club in the chamber and, and um, you know, helped me get my foot in the door and then also sold me this building. And, you know, I didn't know. I've always, I've never been much of a, of a stock market guy. I, I don't understand it. Yeah. And it takes an intellect and you got to follow and you got to yeah. know numbers. I never... Never ran my real estate or or my retail business by the numbers. I bought what I liked, and if it worked, we made money. And if we didn't, it was, it would, wow. but we did okay. And so, so with regards to real estate, I I, I bought a few buildings around town, and and I I had some partners, and they said, well, let me see the numbers and what is your pro forma, and I go. Mm. I, what are you talking about? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we had to buy that building. What do you, you know? What do you? I said, look, just trust me. We'll do this, and we'll paint that, and put shutters yeah. here, and and and. So I've always been one to just uh, move out of passion. You know, I, I a friend of mine came into this garage and said, "You had to just steal everything in here." I said, "I don't think I paid market for anything in here. Mm. I paid over, you know, because." I just was, like you say, that I, I was targeted. I liked that item. I wanted that one. Mm-hmm. And I just paid what you had to pay. And, and the same in, in real estate. I, I bought the right buildings. I've been fortunate there. You know, Rodeo Drive and Beverly Drive and Cannon. I just bought the right buildings. And, um, and the rest just kind of worked its worked right. out. And real estate, has, has it changed fundamentally from then to now? Or is it, is it still instinctive? For you? Oh, um, totally. Yeah. And my yeah. son, who's in real estate, mm-hmm. um, I think he liked, you know, the, my life, you yeah. know. Um, my older son is, he's in the foreign service and he lives abroad and speaks a bunch of languages. And he went to Berkeley and he learned languages and spent time at the International House. And he really got a fine education. Yeah. Um, um, and so he's off doing his thing. And he's he was consul general in Kazakhstan. He's acting ambassador now in Macedonia, North Macedonia. So he's doing, he's following his dream. And, and Evan loved cars. And I think, you know, he liked the, the idea of real estate. And I think he and I, I get along great with my three kids. Mm. And I think he kind of thought, well, you know, I think oh, this is a good gig. You know, maybe we'll father son thing. And then he, he probably came to the notion. And, and I also told him, look, at, I'm not, don't, don't, do what I'm doing. You should get a real education and know what you're doing. So he went off and he got his master's in real estate, worked for a bunch of other people and really learned the real estate business, you know, the, the right way, not the way I went about it. So it was when he came back, it was as though he'd learned all the things you never knew, but you'd done really well with your gut and instinct and timing and passion. But maybe for the modern era, you need Evan's second skill set. A hundred percent right. Okay. Exactly right. Yeah. Because Evan has seen me, you know, I mean, I'll still buy on gut instinct. And Evan will, you know, make sure that I'm not being stupid, stupid. Yeah. And he's gone along with, you know, with kind of uh, 
you know, uh, we, we've done projects together, and now he's on his own. He's doing his projects. And Evan also has a really keen eye, and he's got the nose for this. He's bought the right stuff, yeah. to, you know, um, repurposed it. A lot like what I what I've done. I mean, we're the two of us are probably pretty similar in our approaches. I don't think he's probably he's more detailed than I am, but he's not like detail, 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 mm-hmm. dotting eyes and crossing t's. But he but he's got a great you know uh, uh, staff that works yeah. with him, and he does it the right way. It's so interesting. I've, I've just fulfilling been, too for you. Yeah. Oh yeah. I've just been really fortunate. I was born exactly at the right time when you could when you could really start with nothing and end up with something. Yeah. Very hard to do that now, and now interest rates are even going up. So I, I just it nailed it. You did. I mean, I, I'm, I was too, too young for Korea, too old for Vietnam. Um, God. And, and so I, I, you know, there haven't been, and I hope it doesn't happen, there haven't been any, like, like um, horrible depressions or... No civil serious civil unrest you know that and beverly hills is its own island isn't it i was thinking when i was waiting downstairs i was you know you drive in the traffic's mad on the 405 i live in the valley i came in and you get on sunset and you drive in and the pavement changes when you get to the beverly hills sign it's suddenly you know my truck's bouncing around and suddenly goes smooth into beverly hills (laughs) and then you get here and you you realize it is it is pretty nice it's like a little monaco in the middle of yeah and and That's growing up, you know, growing up in L.A. and then in Hollywood, and then and uh, I, I we've lived here now since '75. Uh, you know, so it's same house, uh, same house since '82. So we've been oh. in the same house oh. for 40 years. But I, living here, it, it it's a small community. There's only 30,000 people living in Beverly Hills. But in, in the daytime, it probably grows to a hundred because yeah. of all the businesses. But it but the police and fire here are. Who you know very well. Yeah, I do. Yes. Because, ladies and gentlemen, uh, I think you should tell a story of when you got the Brumos car. Because didn't you go to a benefit that night and the chief of police or someone come up and say something about their cameras had picked up a car? Yeah, it was just, it was kind of comical. They use drones here in Beverly Hills. Beverly Hills is state of the art. Yeah. If you're interested in doing crime, don't come to Beverly Hills because you will get caught. Yeah. And so they have drones. and, And so... The car came in from Europe, and and Evan and I greeted it and took it out of the you know the transporter, and we just had to go for a ride. Yeah. And the and the Brumos car has has a big fifty nine on yeah. front and back and sides, and so we we took the car out and did a couple of fast passes and mm-hmm. and brought it back and and um, that night or the next night we, we, either that night or the next night we were at we were at the, the police um, the what they call black and white ball. And and uh, the, and our city manager came up and said, you know, Bruce, you know, you, you probably have you ever seen a car with number fifty nine on it? And I, going right, George, yeah. He said, you know, we 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 caught this car was doing some some pretty fast, you know, laps around the flats, you know, the the residential area. And I'm going, uh huh. And so of course we were caught. And I said, you know, it, it, George Chavez is our city manager. I said, George. It's us, you know. <laughs> busted. Who yes. busted? So, so, so anyways, yeah, that, that made us all laugh when we heard that. Yeah, and this is the truth. I mean, so, so. and 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 we drive everything in here. I mean, uh, uh, for me, the drive is really cool. And we, you know, they take the short wheelbase out regularly. We took the Testarossa out last week too. Yeah, I know you do. 
So my generation has to be the perfect time. Yeah. Because you can start literally with nothing. I mean, Evan came in here last year. He said, Dad, like, how did you end up with all this stuff? I said, you know, Evan, I don't really know. I, I don't really. I mean, if somebody said, no, how could you ever afford a four cam in 1970? Yeah. I'd have to think that. I don't know. I don't know. I imagine. It was $10,000. Which was a lot of money. But I imagine you, you if you had 9900 you were going to find the 100 Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'd imagine yeah. you, well, you were going to make it work. You know what? I didn't spend, you know, I had it, it, I had friends that really, you know, came from families, you know, that were probably very, you know, wealthy. Yeah. I did not. And um, because of that, I probably saved and didn't do stupid stuff, you know, because, you know, spring break would come along and they'd go to Newport Beach or Aspen or skiing or wherever they go and I would just find that opportunity to work yeah and so and to save my money I guess I learned that from my dad you know just don't buy stupid stuff I've never denied myself or my family anything that was needed but I also didn't spend stupidly I, I was talking to a friend of mine tonight and uh, we we're talking about flying business class and I mean I flew coach Pretty much my whole life, wow. you know. Wow. Um, but there's friends of mine that, you know, would fly first when they it was they could feel they could yeah. afford it, you know. Wow. Um, how important was having a woman in your life all the way through from 28 to now? Because I've read a lot about it. The bells are not good at that, as you know. But to keep to keep the same one, <laughs> the bells, but, you know. <laughs> And so many in the racing world weren't, let's face yeah. it, but I, I, you know, I've so many business management books or advice on, you know, when you read biographies about people that have made it, a common theme is either they're chaotic with women or they've had a strong woman in their life the whole way through. Well, I, I would, you know, I wouldn't say that my wife is strong, but she's a, a good, loving, very loving mm -hmm. mother. Yeah. And she, she is, you know, very much... Our kids have benefited by having one parent. You know, it's not like, first of all, you, in this day, you know, in my day and age, you got a divorce, you know, half of everything went mm -hmm. the other way. We so, don't need to discuss that, Bruce. Thanks. Okay. <laughs> do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah I do. I look, my, I've just come out in hives. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so I've been fortunate. We've been married 53 years. And she'll, she'll also go on the back. If I said today, we're going to take... A Harley to Sturgis, she'd say sure. I mean, she just so she's she's been great, you know, a great companion in that regard. And we 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 have a lot of fun together. We still enjoy each other's company. As far as my work and my business, she's not been a part of it at no. at, at any level. No. But but she hasn't, you know, said well, how could you buy that and why don't you do this? And she hasn't been bossy in that regard. So she's left me completely alone in my business world. She's been a great mother. Our kids are loving and great parents i think more because of her because she's been that kind of a mother so she's been a great partner yeah i think that's the key the good partner lets you get on with with i mean looking after the kids is a massive yeah is a massive thing and there's such good such good humans in yeah. today like we were having a little chat before we started too many people aren't you know because yeah. of bad parenting so. bad parenting and mm. and there's also you know i i think another thing that's kind of worked for me is that i mean my wife, she came from very modest, very modest, you know, 
upbringing. So it's not like she came with a dowry or yeah. a bunch of money or any money. I mean, I it, it pretty much, you know, from, you know, my efforts and I help her family when needed. And, 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 and that's kind of given me kind of the pride and I'm happy to do it. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's just a great balance. I've been fortunate in what I do and, and she's been grateful and a great mother and great, great, great way to be. Wow. Yeah. Well, I'm really excited to think about the young Bruce Meyer, you're here in Hollywood, Hot Rod's happening, you've got Ed Pink, all this stuff's happening. The, I mean, it must have been wild. But what was the, how available was the sort of celebrity of the time? If you were into Porsche, so was James Dean. What was, I mean, Steve McQueen, what, what was your first interaction with, with guys like that? Well, Steve McQueen raced motorcycles and I raced motorcycles, but he was in a different category. You know, he was in the cool, you know, with Bud Eakins and they yeah. were, they were, you know, like expert up front, cool guys. And I was just hammering it out in the back, back of the pack. So, um, I really, I came across, I knew who Steve was and then I just serendipi serendipitously, I bought his Porsche Speedster just from a, from a car show in the valley, it just, it caught my eye. It was a black Rudge Wheel Speedster 58 Super, you know, just yeah. checked every box. So the fellow had it for sale. It was $1,500. Uh, it was in like 19, it was yeah. in the late yeah. 60s. So I bought it and I had it for 12, 13 years. And then he found out about it. And and then uh, it, there was a, a, a Porsche dealer in Hollywood, Bob Smith Porsche out. And that was kind of like, the, the where all the movie people and cool people hung out and just yeah. happened to be about half a mile from my apartment in Hollywood. Yeah. So he mentioned it to Steve and she said, oh, no, no, I've that car's long gone. And so uh, Steve said, let me just see what this car is. So he called me and he said, you know, I understand you're telling people you have my car, but I don't think it's my car. Can I just have a look at it? And I said, yeah, sure. So we met out in Westwood. Of course, Raylene was with me on that. I run. bet she was. <laughs> and um, anyway, so he looked at it, and oh, it was his car, 100%. Still had his Gardner Reynolds, which is a racing recap on and the in the spare. It was the roll bar mount was still there. It was it was his car. What was what do you remember about the meeting? Were well, you excited to go meet? I mean, he I was wasn't, heading towards the biggest I, movie I, star I, in the world. No, nah, I didn't. You know, because... In our store, I, I dealt with a lot of the movie. I've never been, you know, listen, there's good people and there's people that are full of themselves and not, you know. I, um, wealthy, poor, doesn't matter to me. I don't care if they own the trucking company or drive the truck. It doesn't mm -hmm. matter. It's not to me. So I was just going, I was more for Raylene to meet Steve, you know, because she's a real movie buff. Yeah. And I guess I was curious, you know, just to, and so the meeting went really, really well. And then for probably three months after that, every week he called me, Bruce, you don't know, this is the first car I ever bought new and I raced it and it's, you know, Neely and I were together in it and you gotta sell it to me. And I thought, you know what? I said to Raylene, you know, I think I'm gonna just sell him the car because really, he really, really wants it because I just didn't want him to buy it and then just go off it, you know? Yeah. And so Raylene says, don't sell that car. You love that car so much. and. Uh, I should have listened to her then, yeah. but I didn't. And I said, I'm going to do it. So I sold it to him with the idea if he ever sold it, it would come back to me. Of course, he died, and now Chad has it. Yeah. And Chad's not doing great right at the moment. But um, I'm sure it'll go to their grandson. It'll be a, a, a that'll stay be in the family. Stay in the family, which is great. And then I, about two, two or three years later, I found a twin. I mean, a identical twin to Steve's car, which I have here. Yeah. 
you know, and I, so I have it, you know, it's just not Steve's, but it's just like his. Yes. Just like it. And it's such a good story because you forget how we look back. It's like everything to do with this historic and collector car world is full of nostalgia and it's driven by other people's memories, not many genuine not many original first-hand memories Mm -hmm. you know it's it's this is the provenance of the car this is the you know this is who owned it and i heard that so and so owned it but to hear you know that was a moment that was a transaction that actually really did happen oh yeah and raylene took a picture it was really cute because she took a picture of steve and me when i was delivering the car and yeah that's and uh yeah so how did what what about car culture in in california at that time we didn't have obviously we had hot rodding it was all about racing it was all about more power drag racing was a big thing um when it came to when you were move not moving away from bikes when the car thing was getting bigger for you what about racing did racing so so i did uh, when i got my porsche there was a a, uh club called the porsche owners club prc Mm -hmm. and they did jim connor so i did that you know pretty regularly yeah um, I, I didn't do any track events. First of all, I was work, my, my store was open six days a week, so I was here six days a week. And, and the idea of you know, spending a lot of money on vintage racing, it just, I just didn't have that in the budget. Mm-hmm. Um, so I didn't do a lot of racing. Um, but, uh, but you led to Bonneville. I mean, oh, yeah. how did so, that? So, what, so, so, so when I was growing up, it, Hot Rods were, that was aspirational for me to have a hot rod yeah. but my, it was not part of my upbringing or what sorry sure i just realized that's okay bloody camera was in my was in, was in my shot of you it's that's good. all right that's good perfect thank okay. you okay um so i always wanted a hot rod yeah and then you know there were different kind of categories of car people there were hot rodders was probably the kind of the bottom end i don't want mm-hmm. it to sound you know, elitist, but it was kind of hot rodders. And then there were Cobra guys. That was one step above a hot rod. And then there were, you know, uh, MG, you know, and kind of like early sports cars guy, guys with the early MGs. And then there was, you know, Porsche guys and there were Ferrari guys. Mm. That's, I think that's kind of a broad, you know, like yeah. ladder. And so um, I went, I just skipped. So I checked out of hot rodding and muscle, oh, excuse me, muscle cars. So it was hot rods, muscle cars, Cobra, Probably MGs, Porsches, and then Ferraris, mm-hmm. and and um, so oh, I when I when I went into Porsches, I just left hot rodding, but I always loved hot rodding, and so I I had Porsches and and the and the one Ferrari. I don't consider myself really a Ferrarista, mm-hmm. but I I'm probably more a Porsche file. But um, I, I later on in in like. The uh, late seventies, I ran into Jim Busby, and I'd known Jim for a very long time because he started in hot rodding. Yeah, and he drag raced top fuel. I mean, he was the real deal. Yeah, and and um, he had a little thirty-two Ford High Boy, which just looked like happy days to me. <laughs> and I remember, you know, what I didn't realize at the time, Jim sells everything. You know, Jim already oh, buys yeah. and sells. So, so I I saw Jim. It was at the uh, it was an auction in Newport Beach. I said, oh, my God, that's the cutest car. And it, he was cruising in it. And, and I said, if you ever sell that, let me know. You know, one of those deals. That was like on a Saturday. On Monday morning, Jim calls the where do you want the car? I'm going, which car? My hot rod. You want it, right? And I go, well, 
Yeah, you know, and it was $15,000. I really didn't have a place for it. I really didn't want it right then. I wanted him to, you know, like yeah, just down the road. And mile down yeah. the road. Yeah. So anyways, he d- delivered the car on the, like the Monday after. And I, I thought, God, you know, this is, I'm not sure I'm going to, well, anyways, I'll just try it out. And so I started driving it and everybody gives you thumbs up. Yeah. And I started enjoying it. And I thought, this is really cool. This, I'm going, this, uh, it was a, a category that I missed yeah. younger. So, so I, this little High boy that, that that he had had a very small Chevy and a 283, which was a very small yeah. Chevy with a Power Glide transmission, and it wasn't nasty enough. So there was a fellow up in Crestline named Bob Bowder who was a real badass, and he had a 32 that was built by a fellow named Barry Lobeck, and then Barry sold it to Steve Coonan, and Steve Coonan sold it to Bob Bowder, and then Bob Bowder just bought it to sell, and he sold it to me. And this is with a 383 stroker, you know, four-speed, I mean, wicked fast. And so I I, I sold the Busby's High Boy to a friend of mine. I said, if you sell it, it's got to come back to me. Well, he had it for a few years. It did come back to me. But then I started loving this whole hot rod thing because yeah. it was so entertaining, it, you know, and it was... These cars were fast, but like, not like supercar fast where yeah, you're going to hurt yeah. yourself. You know, they were just fast. And so I kind of got into it and I thought, you know what? I'm going to look in my old hot rod magazines and just, you know, wonder what happened to some of these real famous cars. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of how I got into the to the vintage uh, thing. Okay. So I had Pete Chaporis, who lived across the street from Bob Bowder, and I bought the Pearson Brothers Coupe and then... Uh, the McGee car and Don Spencer's car and the belly tank and so forth, and I, all of which were restored by Pete mm-hmm. Chaporis. And Pete was just the coolest guy. I said, there's two, the coolest two guys I ever met. One was Pete Chaporis and the other was Don Prudhomme. Uh, Prudhomme is just a, I mean, he is rock cool. And, and of course, coming, he was into his ascendancy at that point, right? With the whole, you know, with drag racing. Yeah, when we did his interview here, he just, the way he described how it went, how when drag racing went pro, and suddenly there was money in it. That oh, yeah. game changed. Oh, no. When Prudhomme was racing, he didn't have time for anything else. Friendships, being nice to people, anything. He was just, he wasn't what he is today. And, and by the way, I, since I've gotten out of retail and I'm more relaxed, I'm not what, I mean, I used to be uber hyped. I mean, every minute counted. You know, I had to make, every minute had to be productive. Wow. The idea of, you know, taking the kids to the beach, not going to happen, wow. you know? So, cause I was just super oh, no. amped. And so both of us are different. We're both, we're a month apart in age or a couple months. But wow. so we, when I, I bought the Greer Black Prudhomme Dragster, which is maybe the winningest dragster in the history yeah. of, ever of drag, or it will always be the winningest car cause it had such a ridiculously good record. It, I remember when I got that, I just couldn't wait to tell Prudhomme, who had no interest in it. No, really? Oh, my God. And he was, and not only that, he wasn't very nice about it. You know, he was like, I'm working. Just don't bother me, kid. Oh, I heard that. Yeah. How yeah. funny. Oh. Go, go back to Bonneville. How did you end up going okay, so fast at Bonneville? And yeah, kind of, was that part of the spirit of the adventure that you could get a car, buy a car, put one together, get your license and go and drive at Bonneville? Yeah. So, so Bonneville was like, you know, for hot rodders, that's kind of the cool thing. Yeah. And so I had this friend of mine, Jack Rogers, who had run Bonneville and El Mirage and just all over. And, yeah. and he says, you got to come drive my car, you know. And I'm at Bonneville, I thought, you know, I will. 
And so you have to get licensed. And you could be Parnelli Jones or Dan Gurney. Everybody has to get licensed. And and so I got licensed. And and uh, I drove. He had a Camaro, and I drove it. I'm you know I I think I went two twenty four on that, which was plenty cool. Yeah. But but with at, at Bonneville, it's kind of like the uh, rodeo. You know, you go you got the barrel racers and the roping and that kind of stuff. But the you go to see the bull riders. And, and the bull riders of Bonneville, the guys that drive the open roadsters, you know, I thought, mm. that's really what I wanted. I want to go over 200 in a roadster. So, so um, um, uh, Mike Cook, uh, I found a car he had built for a guy who would retired. And so the interesting thing about Bonneville is it, it's not like you get the latest and greatest new model. You just keep, you know, uh, repurposing the old ones. Okay. So I found a, a car that had run, was built a long time ago, and we just took it apart, completely took it apart. You know, went from a wet sump to a dry sump and different transmission, you know, air shifting. And yeah. we, we just complete, we just started all over in the car. And that's the one I have here. And I just wanted to go over 200. And that was a, a that was like an unbelievable ride for me. I bet it was a- unbelievable. Was that the most nervous you've ever been in your life? Well, it was- happened. So, so- um, it was interesting because I was talking, I, I, this last weekend were the winter nationals, you yeah. know, drag races. Did you go? Oh yeah. Yeah. And a friend of mine, Mike Salinas, I don't know. If yeah, that yeah. I know that name. Big time guy. And you know, they're running, you know, the over 300 and some miles an hour in like a little over three seconds. Mm-hmm. Ooh. And, and, um, I don't know where I'm going with this, but, um, what well, no, I think it was just about, uh, Driving that fast. Well, well you so so, yeah. so when I was ri- racing motorcycles, I I never wanted to disappoint my parents, you know, because they, I mean, they were so good to me and they so believed in me. I mean, to let me, to, to stand by while I opened a candle shop. I mean, that took, mm-hmm. that, you know, that's pretty cool because most parents would dominate and just say, no, you're not opening a candle shop. You're yeah. going to get a real job or something, you know. And so I, when I was a, a, a racing motorcycles, I knew my parents didn't know I had motorcycles. I knew they would, if they knew I was racing motorcycles, that would just devastate them. So they never knew. And every, so all week long before the race, I go, oh, I don't think I should be doing this. And then, of course, you get there, you unload the bike, you put the visor down, it's like game on. Yeah, you, know, yeah. you don't even think about it. So with regard to the Roadster... I knew this, you know, from my family. Maybe it wasn't the smartest thing I ever did yeah. because at Bonneville and with any kind of racing, you know, as long as nothing happens, everything's going to be just fine. Totally. But shit happens, and it sometimes is real bad. And I didn't want to just become, you know, a mess for my yeah. family. So I thought maybe I shouldn't be doing this, you know, as we're building the engine, you know, 1,000-horsepower Chevy, you know. Maybe I shouldn't be doing this, but you know that lasted until we got to Bonneville. I put the visor down, and then it's game on. And 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 Bonneville is interesting because it's like a it's like a dirt surface. You know, it's yeah. not like a paved road. You, you go two hundred on yeah. pavement. You know, the car moves a lot. And and um, if you're not comfortable at speed, it's it's a real uncomfortable ride. And you go for five miles flat out. You know, and it takes you know it's it's it takes a, bulls. And and so I knew what I was thinking about. I was talking to Mike Salinas. Oh, I was talking to Tony Stewart. And 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 I always thought when I when I pull the chutes on my car and you get that slowdown, you know, it's like getting a hug from your mother. Uh-oh. And I was saying I was saying to Tony the same thing. He said, Well, you know, when you're driving a dragster, the G force going from zero to three hundred in three seconds 
unbelievable. And then you got to stop this thing. So he then you go from like Mac, you know maximum G force coming to stopping. He said, "Is and I never even thought about stopping because in at Bonneville you got three miles to slow down. You know you pull the chutes and you have no front brakes. We got back brakes. You know it woes down real smooth and it's no problem. Although I remember the first time a friend of mine said, you know just when you do your turnout, just make sure you're watch and make sure you're going slow because yeah. you you go from 200 down to 70, you think you're crawling, but you're He's still moving. I, it must just be such a rush. I've I've got to go out there one day. I really want to go and see it. I I really want to go out there. Well, you know, there's a few boxes to check. You know, for me, uh, Bonneville was one of them. Isle of Man, TT. Have you been to that? Which you went to, right? I did. Oh yeah. my God, that was just unbelievable. That is the Holy Grail. It is. I've never been to a sporting event like that in my life. No. That had such risk. And speed, you don't have to, I mean, you would never be on, you would never participate. You know, that's not for, oh. But these guys are bred for it. You know, they're they're all from the same area. You know, there's yeah. not like Italians and Germans and Swiss or Swedish. You know, these guys are born in that area. They know every turn on that road. And they die doing it. Every year. Every year. Some as the top ones. I mean, guys yeah. that are the equivalent of a Tony Stewart in bikes die there. That's right. But the videos keep me watching. I don't think I've watched any other sport, any other event as much as I have on YouTube as I have the TT. And it still doesn't do it justice. Really? You have to see it. To see, you know, there's a gal, it's like Rosie's Corner or something, and this gal with bright dyed red hair, um, uh, it was thanks to to the, the Duke of Richmond. Yeah. I asked him, like, we want to go, but we want to go the right way and meet the right people. And so he gave me the name of a guy. Then I turned it over to Richard Varner, who's chairman of the Peterson. Richard yeah. runs Moto America. He understands motorcycle racing. And he really put the, it was Charlie Nierberg, myself, Nick Mason, yeah. uh, Gordon McCall, Chip Connor. It was a great group. And we, and the police chief drove us around in his van and he took us to this Rosie's Corner. He said, this is where you want to watch the race. And it's one of these front lawns that are kind of elevated. There's a stone wall, and it's elevated. So you basically lay down, and you and you can hang your head over a little bit, you know, and watch them yeah. coming and going. And they, it's you see maybe uh, a mile, not a mile, maybe a half a mile. They come by you at about 200, and then they drop off down below. You don't even see where they go, but you can see they're still on the gas. And and it's stone stone walls on both sides. There's no no safer barrier. There's nothing. If something happens, you will die. You will die. Yeah. And they go by at a speed that you just I could. I mean, I've got video. Still remember it. Oh, feel it. Unbelievable. Yeah. What a what an experience. God, yeah. No, I I got to do that. So but Bonneville isn't quite that risky. No, but I, I, I but it's still there. it's still a rush. I'd still you know? one day one day go out there. But you see, you've gone two hundred in, in an automobile, yeah. on, you know. So I had and I was starting from yeah. zero. You know. Yeah, but it's different when you're. I think, like at Le Mans, the first time you do the couple of laps on on the Mulsanne. And you go, this is kind of the same road that trucks were on yesterday. So it does have that element. And once, but again, once you get into it, the helmet's on, you, you're, you're under pressure. You know, it's just a race. But 
Um, were you at Le Mans before the kink? Before the the year it started, the 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 two chicanes started in my first year. Your first year, because yeah. I can't even imagine without those chicanes. Yeah. Have you ever watched In Car Nine Five Six? The video. You should. You, I think I. Yeah, uh, you must have a DVD or something. Who, who was? Who was? It driving? was Dad in the Rothmans Porsche. It yes. was all the championship races, and they had this massive bloody camera in there. And they do the Nurburgring, they do Silverstone, they do Le Mans. But it, you put the Mulzan, them on as they go onto the Mulzan, and it's a minute and a half of flat out. Flat out. I mean, wah, Dad said, you tighten your belts, you look around, you check. I'm going, God, you're fucking nuts. I mean, that's wild. Oh, my God. Yeah. It's it's a, in Car 956, I, anyone listening, that is, it's I, like I, a I, must do. It's a classic. Um, it really is. You mentioned the people. You do have this wonderful ability to 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 collect people. I think they gravitate to you, which is which is a hallmark of your life, obviously. And our world of cars and bikes and collecting them, obviously, is your world so much. But it's got so many. When I say rich, not financially rich, rich in texture, people, right? Amazing human beings, men and women that. Have most of them have been here, you know, your as your friends. Do you do you look on this journey through life that making friends at every level in in this in your passion must be must be so rewarding because you look so happy when you have everyone around. Everybody knows Bruce, mm -hmm. but it's they all want to. Oh, that's well, be crochetate. And you're very kind, Justin, because you've been we've been great friends, and you've yeah. always been terrific to me, and I appreciate. It. And I'm very honored to be here with you. I can oh, tell you that. You. But that that has been a big part of my life. I mean, that is the most biggest part of my life. The cars are things. I'm the a custodian for them, but you know, it's the friendships. Um, you know, just you know, having met your heroes. You know, yeah. Parnelli and Dan Gurney and well, the last time I saw Dan was right with Alan Decadney on the. I've got photographs of it right here. Yeah, where that bike is. Yeah, crazy. Yeah. So it was just meeting these guys and Carol Shelby and you know it's just um, really special. That's that's the most meaningful kind of collective. You know the cars are nice, but the great friendships are just eclipse that completely. You know it's just. It's just really meaningful to me, and it's not because I, you know they. I hear all this. It's just, it's just um, having met those guys and yeah. con consider them friends. And and your dad is always so kind to me. We sat next to each other a million. You know, it, the the Bell family are good people. Oh, you know, you. and not full of themselves. You know, because I I would think with the accomplishments that you and your dad have done. I mean, you guys could be unreachable and just kind of you know next level but you're not you're you're just oh, always you. so kind to everybody and your interviews are so so easy and charming and oh, thank you i mean i've got to say with dad is let you feel about your dad your dad wasn't famous my dad is and i've never heard anyone say a bad thing about him which is is that i've never heard i obviously i've never uh, spoke to someone who lost a building to you in a deal but you know what i mean i'm sure there's there are people out there but in general i one of the things i'm most proud of is that everybody in a sport when you race almost to the death sometimes you know certainly risked it no one's ever had a bad word to say and it makes me you know i'm prouder of that than than anything really um because it was a tough sport uh it really was 
But on that note, we are at we're at a point, unfortunately, in our in history, in your timeline, at eighty years old, eighty two, same as dad, that there's less runway ahead than behind, uh, less runway ahead than behind, and people are going. And look at Parnelli. I mean, I'm waiting every day. I think every moment, you know, that might happen. And Dan, and uh, that's just freaking sad, isn't it? You know, it's, that is a real sad part about aging. And, and you know, we just lost Bob Ingram, you know, the yeah, Porsche guy. Geez. And he would, he and I were super close. Mm. And and so, you know, I know, you know, you don't know when it's going to come, but it is coming for everybody, by the yeah. way. And you can be young, and I've lost friends you know, young and old. So it, it is, it, it's kind of, I know I'm on the, they say you, you can see the clubhouse, you know, you're moving. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, but it is also about mental approach and health. And I know you keep yourself super fit, which is, which is part of it. And dad does too. But that's what the stories. And I think like the get togethers you have with everybody and you bring everyone around. I think the more opportunity we have to, Bring young every generation, Evan and mine, and then his kids and my son Oliver, you know, and Tallulah, it to to help them understand that that it was a very exciting time. The, are you? I think you were born in the right time, the best time, the best time. I I don't see how today I could accomplish anything that I've done in today's world. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe you could be in, you could meet people through Instagram or something like that, yeah. but it's not the same as having them by your garage and, you know, hearing them talk about their achievements and, you know, yeah, no, I, 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 I've really given a lot of thought to, you know, you know, I wouldn't trade with a 50 year old today with the way things are looking. I don't Thanks. feel it. Feel as yeah. <laughs> no, I don't feel I don't feel as good about their future as no. as ours. You know, ours was just you really, you know, you had something to look forward to. It I'm 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 a little concerned. You know, the way the world is going and the way our country's going. Um, you know, I'm a I think the very patriotic person, yeah. and I'm very proud of of my country. And um, I think you know, we're all in for a little rough ride. I could you know? be, and I and I just yeah. I I guess you just have to think everything's going to be okay, and I hope it is for because I've got you know seven grandkids and three yeah. wonderful children. I just want them to the when they're my age to have the same feeling yeah. that they've lived a good life and have great friends and accomplish something. That's true. I uh, well, I remember I did talk to someone, an older guy about a year ago and I was like oh, what a different world he was sitting in the doctors with me and he was late 80s and he went well let me tell you he said just uh, in the mid 40s not many of us thought the sun would ever shine again he said oh so, in the UK in the UK he's oh you know God. we thought the world would never there would never be happiness again and and so it does the world is sickly you know, and that and 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 that's what gives me hope is that Sometimes when things are the darkest, you know, you just think there's, it's just no way out. Things just happen. Yeah. And, and you look, I mean, I look at what's happening in Ukraine. And I remember the, the bombings in the UK and I mean, I, yeah, yeah, you know, it's just, you just think it's over, but you know what? God's got a plan. And I guess, you know, he, 
you know, gives us something to look yeah. forward to when we come out of it. Yeah. And, do, you, and, do you think humans are good, essentially? Um, that's an, that's going to a whole, yeah. Yeah. I, I think, you know, I, you know, I think what, I think like growing up, um, if I, if, if, if I knew there were no consequences, if I did something, if I compromised, it would have, it would have impacted me. Hmm. You know, today, the consequence, I th I'm, I'm a, listen, I, I don't, I'm not, I'm, most of my family is Catholic, but I, I say I have my own religion, the religion of gratitude, and I thank God every day. But if I didn't think that there was somebody, you know, whether it's the IRS or God or somebody, you know, that, that could make my life not so good, you know, maybe, you know, maybe the, the human part of me would just take advantage of situations. Who knows? You know, maybe I wouldn't pay my taxes or, no. or, or you know, Maybe I would take advantage of somebody, but I always felt like there are consequences for doing things right and consequences for doing things wrong. And, and I think consequences had a real big, had a big part. I mean, I was, I didn't want to disappoint my dad. My dad, I didn't want to get spanked either. And I didn't, yeah. so it was, I think consequences have a lot to do with keeping humans human mm -hmm. and good. That's a good way of saying it. Okay, before we go, You've got seven grandkids. What is your, if you had to sum up your philosophy on life, the thing that you'd want them to say, you know, tell their kids about their great grand, about their granddad. What, what, what would your philosophy really be? Just your motto, morals, motto well, for life. Well, my grandkids, you know, I, you know, are so young because we we didn't get started with grandkids yeah. until late. So I just wanted to say, their grandpa had a cool car collection. Yeah, <laughs> they're not going to know my business philosophy yeah. or my or any any yeah. philosophical thing, but they come over here and I'm Papa, you know. Yeah, and they like the old cars. I just I would like them just to remember me as a happy person that, you know, lived you know uh, uh, a happy life, you know, because it's you know they won't know what I particularly what I started with or you know. But hopefully they'll look at pictures and whatever little remnants we leave behind, and they'll think, you know, that's that was probably a pretty cool guy. Well, they can listen to this and find that's out. right. <laughs> Bruce, you are a happy person. Thank you so much. You make everyone's life happier. So, well, thanks, and really and, nice. and I, it, as I said before, it's just a real privilege to know you, Justin, and and you add a lot of happiness to you. wherever you are, and I love it when you know you're. Emceeing or talking, you know, you have such a great way of uh, communicating. It's a real gift. Thank, Thank you very you. much. God Thank bless. You. That was wonderful. Thank you, Bruce. That was well, thank you very much for listening or watching Life with Legends. Uh, I love doing it. And so don't forget to share the podcast to your friends if you did enjoy it. And thank you so much for your support. Also, remember, visit lifewithlegends.com to catch up on past episodes and check out what I think are some beautiful portraits I've taken of all my guests. Available for sale in limited edition prints. Anyway, guys, thanks so much. I look forward to you joining me again next week.